Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Mr. Derrimuth. Just for reference, <laughs> the name is Drew Meredith in, in my day to day life. Day to day life. My well, side hustle. <laughs> the side hustle is. Andrew Derrimuth is becoming bigger. Yeah. Like I was watching a. Um, we started? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was watching the the uh, was it sixty minutes or something on Barry Humphreys yesterday. It feels mm. like Dame Edna and <laughs> Andrew Dermott have something in common. Both dress as women. <laughs> if you've actually been in the office, <laughs> um, yeah. So Drew Meredith, front planner. How you going, mate? Pretty good. Yeah, back so, from holiday. Should just actually introduce you by full name, yeah. just in case anyone <laughs> who's new to the show thinks, "Well, who is this Dermoth guy?" Um, you've been on holidays. Short holiday. Well, you did record from uh, Billy Heads last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, there was a nice uh, uh, Instagram reel going around of what holidaying with two children is like. Yeah, I did see that. <laughs> yeah, far from a holiday. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, but that would have been a bit of fun. A bit of a warm weather, was it? Or it rained for five days. So thanks for asking. Yeah, um, the last Great. two days were Happy beautiful and uh, exactly what we we're looking for. Okay, well, two out of seven. Plenty of activities, wildlife and... Yeah, cool. Yeah, Yeah, well, it's been cold down here anyway, so... And we've got more of it coming, so... Um, Cool. Yeah, no, it's been a pretty pretty interesting week. In fact, I must admit, I did walk into the office this morning. I saw something on your whiteboard in your office that said, (laughs) you need to get on Bloomberg five times. You can't... You wrote... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, First to the office today, so I did sneak into Drew's office and I put a, a bit of a game plan on the wall... Uh, so, Dr. Dr. Andrew uh, Derrimuth, Esquire, is, is going to be- <laughs> Not a doctor. <laughs> uh, is going to be, he's definitely a gentleman though, uh, is going to be on Bloomberg five times, that's my prediction, and then from there, he's going to be elected to the board of the RBA and maybe become the CEO of Afterpay after that. I thought you would have gone with Zip, but Afterpay's fine. <laughs> don't want that. I'll take that. <laughs> we are, well, one sinking ship's enough. We are visiting the RBA, <laughs> the RBA next week. It's a yes. Martin place in, uh, in Sydney. So. Yeah. So, keep an eye on your Instagram feeds because, oh, actually, that reminds me, we do actually want to do a bit of a poll. So, if you are on any of the social media, we're considering uh, trying to get uh, Andrew Derrimuth on the old uh, social media. So, if you are out there- listening, please keep an eye out for the poll because there may be a, a new account. Very popular economist here in Australia. We were just talking about a popular economist off air who we just kind of like, what is, what do you need to, Mm-mm. what course or line of study or experience do you need to be able to call yourself an economist? I feel like it's pretty flexible. Economics? <laughs> well, that would make sense. <laughs> but then a lot of them that you see in the news don't have economics degrees. Like arts, philosophy, politics, yeah. political science. Some of them just study straight commerce and stuff like that. Well, I think even during I studied commerce, I think you did as well. Even during yeah. that, there are only about three subjects on macro yes. and microeconomics. Yeah, it's pretty basic. Yeah. They're pretty powerful subjects, but um, the old supply and demand, it's, it's about it, right? Um, <laughs> You're saying, my, I'm, I'm overqualified for the economist over, position. That's what I'm trying to get to. Me. I mean, who sets the rules is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, we're setting the rules right now and you're going to become, you're our in-house economist. And if you can stand with the, if you get a photo outside the RBA, then it means everything is- Halfway there. It's power. Um, okay. So, stuff we've been working on recently, 
toying with the idea of a side hustle. Um, I got into a bit of a debate on, not a debate, it was actually a good bit of lively chat on uh, Twitter regarding Zero, which is a company I own shares in, saying that they need to raise prices. Amazon came out this week and raised the price. Well, they announced they're going to be raising the price of an Amazon Prime membership from $6.99 to $9.99. Might not seem like much. It's 50% inflation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then someone, I can't remember who it was, sorry, on Twitter told me that they also are raising their third-party logistics prices by up to 100% in some cases. And Microsoft did the the flow-through of the increase to their uh, Office 365 platform started to flow through. I, I think, did it. As well. Yeah, right. That's why they had such a good revenue result. Ah, right. I'm not much of a Microsoft user myself, but um, but Drew definitely is here. Uh, when, you need it, when you're preparing to be economist, you have to do that sort of stuff. Um <laughs> But yeah, basically, I just said that uh, Zero needs to raise its prices. It's not, it's teetering on break even. They've just done some cost outs. But the world is moving. You need to be profitable. Like, Did you get a lot of angry emails from the millions of customers? Just some people have said, like, if they did that, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm like, well, maybe. But for the people that hang around, like me, I'm happy to pay a lot more than my 56 bucks a month or whatever it is. I don't even know what I pay. Well, we use it in every one of our businesses. Yeah. And, but would you give it up if it went to 100 bucks? No chance. <laughs> yeah. This one, I, I think people underestimate, A, how lazy people are, but B, how much value that thing creates. Um, and what some other platforms within their businesses cost. Like well, That's it, yeah. Where our X-Plan system is the most expensive thing, and that's, I think it's like $50,000 a year. Holy moly. Yeah. That's, that's for all your financial planning stuff. Yeah, relationship. So, you like your customer data and your um, portfolio data. Oh, Wow. Okay, so that's okay. Yeah, well, well, in that context, uh, you're paying six hundred bucks or whatever you're paying for your zero, which is close to nothing. So, I just think a lot of businesses will will still foot the bill, and um, I'm happy to be proven wrong. But as a shareholder, I would like them to raise prices because um, it's been more expensive than QuickBooks the whole time, and it's still the most popular. So, it tells you something about how much people value it. And there's a bit of uh, friction for people to get off because there's yeah. a lot of onboarding, offboarding you have to do. Yeah, there still is. I think that's maybe this is what I mean. Like, I think they need to raise prices soon. I think that's. I think the competitors are catching up with them. Yeah. And I think they need to be aware of that and start to make money, because not every business lasts forever, right? So, this may be a business that does really well for the next five years, and then it's not. It's ex growth or something like that. But they need to make the money while they've got the customers. So. Um, that would be my message. I don't think they're going to do that, mind you. But if you take the lead of all the other subscription providers around the world, they're all doing it. They're all increasing prices. And it would be the true flex. They would know if they've got pricing power from that point on. Because the ability to have a moat in investing is not just to keep your customers, but to make them pay more. Yeah, you can't, It's no point having customers if you can't make them pay more. Um, other than that... Uh, I don't even know why. I don't even know why I've got analytics in here. I don't even know what that means. Oh yeah, every month I um I do a bit of analytics for the for the podcast. It was actually a soft month for podcasts last month. Is that your humble brag? Yeah. So we do yeah. one humble brag a month, and um, I think it's a really good practice to be honest, because a lot of business owners fail to really sell their business effectively. And I think just champion one thing that you did really well that month and let people know about it. It's fine. Um, but. It was a really soft month, yet we still went up the rankings. Even this podcast, Drew. That's good. Yeah, it's good. Really good. Um, so, probably, Andrew Derriman's Andrew Derriman. People say, people say that they, they write in, they go, I just, I just tuned in for Andrew Derriman, really. Um, <laughs> not many. Not <laughs> carrying, many. Carrying, like one or two. <laughs> carrying below, that's for sure. Um, but our property show is probably already number two property podcast. That's great. So, yeah. The, the number one's a big podcast, which is the property couch. But um, yeah. Credit to you. Credit to <laughs> Yep. I was about to say, it depends in response to your credit to you. And I thought that doesn't really jive. But um, yeah, that's what I've been working you said on. jive. <laughs> what, about, what about you? A lot. You've seen my uh, kind of prep here. Oh, you got some notes in the here. The most important thing of the week, and I'm not wrong yet. I've still got Wait. seven months to go. Which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> the RBA and the Federal Reserve increase interest rates by 25 basis points, so 0.25% in the same week. So if doesn't I'm, happen very often. If I'm keeping score from your prediction of interest rates will fall this year, you are still 50 basis points off that. You are now further away from that. I was doing an absolute fall, not a relative fall. No, I was doing a relative fall, like a, not an absolute fall. So even any cut in interest rates is enough. 
Really? We'll have to backtrack <laughs> are, we, on this. <laughs> are we doing like an asterisk here? So wait, so your prediction uh, eventually was shovel that <laughs> digging a hole. <laughs> your prediction event originally was that, or sorry, not yours, Andrew Derrimuth was that cut at some point. Rates would be cut. I believe, but uh, the problem with podcasts is they're recorded and <laughs> many people could easily go back and listen to my prediction and tell me what it actually was. Um, I still think rates are going to be cut at some point. Actually, I'm trying to think. I think we had um, Evan Lucas on for one of the episodes and he also said something similar too. So Confirmation com- bias is com- alive and well. What do they say about company? Um, but uh, 21 I- of 30 economists predicted rates on hold. So the RBA shocked everyone by increasing again. CBA got it right, didn't they? Maybe. But CBA- Everyone gets it right. (laughs) CBA were also the the forecasters that thought property prices would fall 32% in COVID. Yep. Now, they're (laughs) actually saying property is set to go up this year. 3% or something like this. 5% Sydney, 2% Melbourne. Wow. So, what a reversal there for all the people that are like, property- (laughs) It's been a- It's a hectic week. (laughs) What do you mean? Big interest rate policy changes- I did, but uh, we just met um, Paul Bloxham. Yep. So I think you probably met him before, HSBC I met him, Chief Economist. Definitely you know, read him. Part yeah. of the oh, part of the crowd. part of the Illuminati <laughs> of the, the Economist Senior. Uh, and he was essentially talking about all the things that are happening around the world at the moment. Uh, just normal part of uh, tightening of financial conditions. So banks becoming under pressure. The only issue at the moment is, you know, naturally interest rates are there to slow economic activity. The US they've slowed business. And the consumer hasn't stopped anywhere yet. Mm. I think the UK Reserve Bank or Central Bank came out and said, people need to stop spending money if they want inflation to go down. Yeah. yeah. And you I saw do. it in the latest inflation data where it fell from 7.8 to 7, but services inflation, so that's spending on restaurants, cafes, experiences, continues to go higher. Isn't it a record for travel? Yeah. And, but people are buying less goods and shoes and everything else and clothing, but- but they want to do more stuff. on cafes and restaurants. Which is fair enough. They're finally catching on. Spending experiences, not on material items. Just the chin-chin factor. The chin-chin factor, yeah. Well, yeah. What's uh, Mr. Money Mustache says that like only suckers think that restaurants are a source of sustenance. <laughs> it's purely for entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, interesting. Uh, it's been a yeah heck of a week, right? Definitely. They, they thought, well, well, we'll get our inflation down to 3% by 2025. And that wasn't good enough. We're still two years out. Now they're saying- And inflation's Hikem. falling. But then we had retail sales just print at the slowest annual rate yeah. in a year. So it's falling. You know, we love when we annualize single Oh, yeah. Annualize, <laughs> annualize monthly property falls. I don't know. Yeah. Then run it. But retail sales are, are falling. Run an active ETF. All the signs are showing. One of the other things was talking about how most debt in Australia is- Floating rate, so consumers hit harder in the US. None of it's floating yeah, it's, rate. Imagine a thirty-year mor- yeah. mortgage like two percent. Yeah, I was thinking about this. I'm like, oh, still holding on to time it. Time to move yeah. to Florida. But then most business uh, loans in the US are floating, so that's why businesses yeah, right. are hit first compared to consumers over there. So, extrapolating what happens in the US to Australia, very different. Um, yeah, I, well, if you become a, one of these economists, are you going to like just have a prediction on everything and just put only the things that work out on your website? I think you do like when you when you raise a lot of money as an investor. <laughs> yeah. You just hug the benchmark. Just hug the benchmark. Okay. <laughs> okay. Start with so, the bets. We need to get you a columnist position at the AFR. Yeah. And then hug it. <laughs> just say what everyone else is saying and then you can't be too wrong. Yeah. But you need to get there somehow. Uh, I think economists just focus on one or two things. Yeah, just I can't predict GDP any better than anyone else. I love how this is like you're assuming the role already. <laughs> <laughs> what is visualization? Visualization. That's it. Yeah, yeah you are yeah. Andrew Derriman. Um, so, Finfluence the crackdown this week. I was actually asked to uh, jump on Ausbiz and talk about this because I tweeted about it. I said like people need to be careful about pumping and dumping stocks. Um, Always. Th- yeah, that's not a Finfluence thing. Like this is a general. Yeah, that is why, and that's probably the reason why you don't like being referred to as a Finfluencer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Um, but no, no, no. So just a bit of context. So a, a fellow uh, was convicted and sentenced to two and a half years, but just pays a bond. I think it was like a five yeah. grand. I think he served time maybe already. Yeah, something like that. Um, and if he had done it now, the the maximum penalty is 15 years. Yeah. So very lucky there. Um, but basically it seems like uh, the, the person in question – uh, talked about he used multiple different brokerage accounts in the f- family and friends' names, and he would pump specy mining stocks up. 
like with buys and sells in his own accounts and then talk about it on hot copper people would uh, buy in and then he would be selling in the background and do it on the sa- same way on the way down like push stocks down buy more push them up sell yeah um but the fines that were put, imposed seem very minor relative to what i assume were quite substantial gains and for someone that was un- unlicensed as well yeah that was another thing disseminating information that was false and misleading without a license yeah um so this is pretty extreme, but this was going all the way back, if I'm not mistaken, to 2012, 2013. It's quite a, yeah, a long time ago. And we're in at 2023, so it's quite a while ago. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, you just got to be careful where you get the information from. It's particular, I mean, amongst our community, Drew, it's pretty well known that like some of those types of forums are a bit shady. Yeah, and Facebook, a lot of, quite a few Facebook forums Facebook took off groups. during the, yeah. you know, the speculative trading during the pandemic as well. Yeah. So they were... It was a lot of that. I'm sure was borderline. Yeah. Um. You never know what the intent of the people that are running it or coming commenting on there are. Yeah. So just got to be, as they say in the online communities, uh, DYOR, do your own research. <laughs> I saw another one. You say someone You're subtweeted like me. If you keep using someone subtweeted like me, and I had to look it up, and I was like, "Good luck to all the holders." G L T A H. <laughs> Good luck to all the holders. <laughs> I feel like that was my mortgage right now. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so what else is news? Uh, well, uh, we'll go back to interest rates and Dan Andrews was the first one to, to pop up, <laughs> not straying into politics. but Victorian Premier, yeah. Yeah, it just came out and I think you're going to see this more and more though with how aggressively interest rates are going up and how much pain it's having in the economy. The, the Premier of Victoria just stood up and said the RBA is <clears throat> going too far and they're hurting families, literally hurting families. So you, I think we said a couple of weeks ago the percentage of disposable income going towards interest and loan repayments is at an all-time high mm. or set to be at an all-time high. That's what happens when you've got a massive amount of debt. Yeah, it's going to be incredibly painful. And that's up a little bit. why. What, this one? Yeah. <laughs> it's a key reason. The pain, this is what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to push the economy down, Not hopefully not into a recession, but it looks more and more like it. You and are, eventually you have to cut interest rates. So you have six months for your prediction to come true, basically. I think if we've learned anything over the last three years- Things happen quicker than ever. So that's true. Things move quicker than you anticipate. Yeah, like the Silicon Valley Bank crisis was dealt with in 48 hours. Yeah. yeah. GFC true. took three years. Credit Suisse. COVID took three months or three weeks. Yep. Yeah, now, true. Three days. True. Um, Victoria has a big bad debt problem. Does indeed. So it's, it's probably, he's probably saying, <laughs> oh, yeah. rolling those debts over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Listen, listen, RBA, I'm gonna roll, I'm gonna refinance my debt down here. Give us a break. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a real problem, right? Um, people are gonna be forking out. I think I'm paying. I think I was trying to think about it before with this latest increase. It's got to be close to like triple on yeah, my variable. It's gone from like under two to over five. Yeah, I was yeah. around about two, and I think maybe now about six yeah. in terms of the interest rate that we pay. And the, the interesting thing about that is we were like 75% fixed. Yeah. And now we're 100%, 100% variable. variable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just one of those suckers that just rolled Painful. off. <laughs> Welcome. I mean, that was the interesting, there was the panel at, um, was it the AFR's conference a week or two oh, ago? Which had Chris Joy on one side and Vimal Gore. Oh, yeah. So the guy who left bond investing at the perfect time. Did when, he really? Did he leave? And when what? He's appeared on the show before. Crypto. What? He went to crypto in 2020. And he had a ponytail for yeah. a while, but. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, we are a massive fan of his kind he's of work. Amazing. The way he he's thinks. incredible. Yeah, and he basically left bond markets because he got at a point where interest rates were near zero, and he couldn't justify holding long duration bonds anymore. <laughs> so went to a different asset class completely. And he was commenting Oof. similar to what we're talking about. How does how do government sustain such high debt bills and interest bills yeah. with interest rates at five or six percent? So he thinks we're pretty much done on. Confirmation bias, yeah. alive and well, <laughs> on on where rates will sit, and I think the market's saying that too. Yeah, see a photo of Andrew Derrimuth in like an exclusive Sydney uh, hotel with, with, with a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could grow a ponytail. <laughs> that would be neat. I'd pay to see that. Um, so one of the things I think you've got in your notes, I also had it in mine, was um, I think we were going to touch on it last week, but we didn't, which is the help debt. I think it's gone up, was it 7.1%? Do you have it in your notes? It's incredible. So people that have student loans in Australia, uh, you're, the 
the balance for some people will probably exceed what you pay back. They're not really student loans, though. No, they're not. Like you don't have to fork out the money every month, but it's just a, you just pay it out of your tax return once you're in a certain amount of money, which is very different to the overseas model. Um, but this is probably the first time ever, Drew, that uh, a lot of this generation of people that studied at uni um, have realised how it works. Because in the past, it probably didn't make much of a difference with inflation so low. Yeah. But now with inflation indexing the value of that student or help loan, yeah. And can- it's and it's been a bit of a lightning rod for people yeah. discussing it as well. Absolutely. I think one reminder was that it's not an interest that it mm. applies once. It doesn't compound at 7.1% per no, year. You'd have to have inflation at 7% every year. And inflation, uh, assuming they're using the ABS, it could actually be negative. I don't think the legislation would allow the debt to go down. Oh, no, I can't imagine. But at worst, it'd be zero. Yeah. Um, at best, it'd be zero. So, I mean, this is probably in what, what some of the other forums have missed or gone one side or the other, is that it actually, whether you should be paying it off or not, depends very much on your own personal circumstances. That's my first, it depends. <laughs> Apparently, some folks are a fan of the depends. So that's fine. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that was in my notes, too. 20, oh, is it? Tw- I'm on the ATO website now. 2021, the indexation rate was 0.6%, went to 3.9, and now 7.1. It's the longest, uh, the highest indexation rate it's been since 2013. But if you average that over three years, yeah, maybe it's 3.5%. Yeah. That's still quick lower maths, yeah. than the average mortgage rate. Yeah, yeah, would true. be over that period at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what I'd always kind of look at. I think people have referred to um, the portion of income and you for the for the impact on your borrowing capacity, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then you've got the impact on your deposit if you do a lump sum against your help payment as well. So true. there's there's pros and cons to every every decision. There used to be benefits, <clears throat> pardon me, for people paying off their uh, their balance early. You'd save. Five percent, ten percent, twenty percent. Yeah, there's not those benefits anymore. So it's just like most people are just copping it, really. Yeah. And if they don't want to pay it back early, just like me, they just kind of leave it there. Like I think the way I think about it is, it's kind of the cheapest debt you'll get, even though interest rates are up this year. It's probably the cheapest debt you'll find. I don't know if you, how you think about it like that, but I think we talked about it with Kate few weeks ago as oh, well. Oh, did we? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. I did some quick calculations on it. I don't have the money, but it was something like the average rate, even with the most recent, is like 2.6%. Yeah, right. Okay. If you were saying it was an interest rate over five years, about 2.6% or something like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. When you think about, like like you said, it's most cheaper than most mortgages over the last little while. So, um, to stop spending and inflation Stop will fall spending. This is from the Reserve Bank go down. Uh, future governor here. <laughs> stop spending and it will all be fine. But do you think about like how much cash there is in the system? Do you think people will stop spending? I think it's naturally going to happen. Yeah. Like you, a lot of the restaurants are still full. If you if you look walking around Melbourne, everything's still pumping. Yeah, the shops kind of slowed down, which is the first yeah. part to hit. People are still keen to be back in the office. You've seen traffic. It's like no one wants to work from home everywhere. Anyway, yeah. everyone wants to work yeah. from the city again. So... Uh, I think it's going to take a little while, but there's definitely pain from these interest rates. No, interest it has, rate to hikes. has to be. Yeah. It, it, it'll take a few months, but it will trickle through eventually. Um, okay. So, we've got some reports coming up, Drew. We've got maybe... Have you... Have these reports come out from they Uber have. and AMD? They, yes, they have. Um, well, we've got reports coming out from Apple as well. We had a report out last week. I know I've got a few questions on this. I haven't fully digested it yet from Alcidium, which is an Australian small... Cap company had a slightly weaker quarter, um, which has caught some people off guard. It's probably two quarters of weakness now in the UK selling. So um, we're as I'm not a shareholder, but as shareholders, you'd want to expect that that comes back up under CEO Kate Quirk. Um, maybe while you're thinking about, I've got a buy hold sell for you. <laughs> I had one of my own too. Oh yes, I can see this. Okay, interesting. Um, so I don't know how I was going to phrase this first one. So I just did buy hold sell. Which is obviously for those listening at home, it's just like a play on all those buy hold sells that you get around the finance industry, which are pretty much meaningless to your long term wealth creation. <laughs> buy hold sell, Google Docs or Microsoft Word? I'm. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm Why don't we do I'm one at a time? Millennial? Gen Y, I'm Gen Y. You're Gen Y? Yeah. Just, just very, just. <laughs> very just. Um, An old millennial. Which just makes me a Microsoft. <laughs> like, it's what's easy, not what, what's, what's familiar. 
yeah. was the first generation that had iPhones. That's how old I am. Um, That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I'm older than ranking credits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is ease of use and for me for some reason that's microsoft yeah. uh, i've never never i know you make me use google docs for all these yeah things from it's the, free from your young team <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's always been microsoft maybe that's this that we small business it's scalable across multiple businesses it's easier to, to set up it's security is easy microsoft let's just let's call a space spade. microsoft controls the world yeah exactly <laughs> owns chat gpt so yeah um i was even doing something for business.gov today like just filling out some forms and stuff and it's like microsoft on behalf of powered by microsoft <laughs> yeah i'm like ah microsoft controls the government systems it controls literally everything that we touch okay so short google long microsoft oh uh, interesting that's very bold okay uh buy hold sell Andrew Derrimuth Esquire getting on Bloomberg. What do you think? Buy, hold, sell. I think I have to be a hold. You don't reckon it's going to happen? I'm not that kind. Oh, this is Drew speaking. Yeah, okay, yeah, Drew. Not yeah. Andrew. Yeah. I'm a hold. Okay. I'd love, love to see it. I have conviction. You have conviction? If this happens, it's gonna, there's going to be a party. We're going to be down the street. It's going to be like there. Sydney Mardi Gras going down George Street. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, okay. Buy, hold, sell. RBA rate rises. Uh, in what context? That they'll do more or that they're <laughs> good or know. bad things? I was just putting random things. Sell. <laughs> Sell. Okay. Sell RBA. Bad idea. Bad RBA. for the economy. Bad, bad RBA. for business. Yeah. Sell. I ne- they need some dissenters on their board, clearly. Clearly. Calls for Andrew Derrimuth. We should start, put one of those things at a local cafe where people can put their email address and stuff on and see if we can get it happening. Right. And um, uh, I've got one for you, which okay. is buy, hold, sell Louis Vuitton. I would say sell. The stock, not the handbag. Oh, okay. Don't know much about the stock. <laughs> yep. Um, but I would sell the handbags. I, I, I was, I, someone was telling me, uh, someone very close to me who may listen to the show was saying that um, these things go up in value. Like it's a good investment, not a good investment, but like it goes up and compounds dramatically. That was me in that Forbes article. Did you say that? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and I don't listen to the show. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, there he is a bit of inside baseball. I'm walking into the elevator the other day. Drew's watching a video of himself on the way out. <laughs> In my uh, defense, it was only just posted. Yeah, so it's just it was only compliance, just compliance. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know much about Louis Vuitton the stock, but I just can tell you, like, I'm, I just don't buy into any of the whole luxury items. Like, I just don't get it. They own Moet and Hennessy as well. Oh, well, I drink that. Yeah. Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> but- um, They've made Bernie Arno the richest man in the world. Richard yeah. Musk. Stock's up oh, 27% really? this year. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Richard than Musk? Yeah. Poor. Really? I'm just going to look this up. What's the- What's the? I think it's Bernard Arno. What's the damage on that? Whoa. 211 billion. Billion. Yeah. What? Wow, Musk is a hundred. Musk is a is a, a petty hundred eighty billion. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. He's just shot up. I guess when the stock does what it does, right? So that's incredible. Uh, speaks really well. Yeah, speaks very well. Um, okay, well that's interesting. Do you own the stock? We do in some uh, models where clients want some overseas exposure. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, great. It's that luxury consumer. Yeah, okay. not many options to buy it in Australia. So what that that article that you got quoted in that was a what was that what publication was that financial times forbes was it forbes was it it was a forbes one okay so now we if you can get to forbes we can get you to (laughs) bloomberg no worries (laughs) we can get you to surely we need to find someone who works for bloomberg if you're listening um surely we can get at least like let's just build up to it you know we start with the podcast pretty high quoted on crypto in bloomberg two years ago but I was what did you say it's very negative <laughs> that's probably very prescient you've yeah. timed it very well okay so we've got some questions 27 minutes <laughs> into the show um, <laughs> so as always general advice only applies to these questions we don't know your circumstances we genuinely do not know your circumstances and we ask you to kind of anonymize your uh, question and name so that it just adds another layer of us not knowing exactly who you are so we couldn't in any way, be giving you personalized advice. If you want to see a financial planner like Drew here, um, who will give you serious advice other than what you get on the show, um, you can reach out to them. And I would encourage you to do that um, before you act on any of the information. Reach out to a financial planner um, and get that advice that's appropriate for you. 
Otherwise, if we do mention things like funds or ETFs, please read the product disclosure statement or PDS as well as the target market determination or TMD. It should be available on their website. It tells you more about the risks, the tax and all those types of things um, about like the fund or product. Okay. First question comes from Aussie in denial in brackets river. Hi, love the pod. Now this one was quite niche. When I read this, I was like, okay, here we go. Way to start it off. So Aussie in denial says, I'm an Aussie, but I've been living out of Oz in Asia and Africa for the last 15 years. Lately, I've been getting my finances in order and sending savings back to Oz to invest in some ETF and stocks. Your podcasts have been most helpful on this journey. I recently discovered that I have about $4,000 in super earned when I lived in Australia that was sent to the ATO due to my inactive account with less than the required six grand. Even though it's not much, I don't like the idea of it just sitting there, not compounding until I come back to Oz. Um, which could be decades away. They go on to say that um, can they use that money to invest it, to, to start to put it back in super and maybe get insurance or to start investing or maybe there's something else they can do with it. Drew, what do you think? It's a very niche and complicated area of finance. Yeah, I had a quick look in terms of residents leaving the country. Yeah. And you can't, unless you're a, you're a temporary resident when you when you came, you can't get your super you're subject to the same conditions of release as everyone right. else. So you can't um, take it out or cash it out, which I don't think it was asking, but it's always worth considering yep. whether you're coming back or not. Uh, but it is, you know, lost super. The aim of that was basically to stop fees gobbling up superannuation accounts from default super industry yep. super funds, essentially. Um, and you can you can definitely access it. You go through the ATO. All you have to do, I think what you'd have to do though is set up a new superannuation account and then have that fund drag your ATO loss super into it mm. or, um, or ask the ATO, ATO to pay it out. But I think it makes complete sense to get out of the hands of the ATO who's probably yeah. earning the interest on it. Yeah, absolutely. If you are, the, the question was about insurance. That's actually a really technical one where you'd probably want to speak to someone because um, there may be some, if you're using that $4,000 balance to fund insurance via super. It's not going to last long. It won't last long, particularly if you're doing something in a different country that might be considered high risk work or something like that. Yeah. They have to be underwriting, maybe even medicals or something like that. So yeah, I mean, that's that's a bit of a sticky one, but I've thought there was, and I could be wrong. There'd be payout restrictions on insurance internationally as well, I'd suggest. Yeah, I would think so. You'd have yeah. to, it'd be, you'd have to get yeah. We have to prove that you need the money and whatever. But I thought that um, maybe this is just for foreign residents or non, uh, like a temporary residence here in Australia where you can get your super if you give up your citizenship or something like this. Uh, could be mistaken. Like, I think you can transfer it out. I think it's only when you're temporary. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like you've earned it while you're here and then you're taking it out in cash. If you're an Australian citizen, you can't. From, yeah, right. From- I, I know a lot of people that go the other way. They have the like the 401k in the US or they've worked overseas somewhere yeah. where they bring the money back because they worked for- And transfer it in. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, where they worked for a substantial amount of time overseas. There's actually a lot of people like that. Like a lot of the com- companies these days are global companies, right? And people earn super or the equivalent overseas. It's a tough question. Um, you're probably better off, like who knows, but um, speak to an expert if you do want to try and release it. It doesn't sound like you can. Um, but you can use your big super funds to do a bit of uh, investing through those member directs, SMSF yeah. light type stuff. Yeah, air quotes. Yeah, yeah, you could never have an SMSF, so you'd always have to have an external trustee. So yeah. whether that's a industry fund or a retail fund, yeah, um, that's the way you'd, you'd invest it, and you could just duplicate what you're holding personally if you wanted to. Mm. Um, but and contributions you'd probably avoid while you're overseas as well, given you can't access the funds. True. Uh, did you want to read the next question, name? I read it out uh, in the office last night because I couldn't work it out. But I'm not sure. Are we still a PG rating? Or is Bo Tom Picker gets (laughs) smelly finger. (laughs) Thanks, Bo. (laughs) Bo says, hi, Owen and Drew. I'm revisiting my long dormant and directionless share portfolio. (laughs) I wish to reach to a broader growth portfolio greater than 10 years of mainly ETFs and including some bond ETFs to enable opportunistic buys when the next epidemic, energy crisis, etc. hits. I'm a bit uncertain of where to draw the line with regards to management fees, MERs or ICRs as, they, as they're known, uh, particularly around some of the thematic options like battery materials or, or 
carbon. I added carbon. Uh, surely these would only ever be a small fraction of a growth portfolio. Thanks, Bo. Uh, I'll pass this question to Owen, who is <laughs> doing I- doing quite a few. Uh, uh, series on I yeah. know building core ETF portfolios. Yeah, and, I did one the other night actually. Yep. Um it's really popular. Would you like to repeat his name as well? Did I pronounce oh, it no, correctly? Bo, B O. Bo. I think surname's Tom. <laughs> Bo Tom. Um <laughs> so <laughs> um I would just say you can build a core portfolio for very low. Uh in my notes you could easily build an ETF only portfolio for fifty basis points as like a what we would call a blended <laughs> What we would call a blended MER. What we mean by that is that you would have, say, like Aussie equities or global shares that might have on that particular vehicle, might have a fee of uh, 0.1%, which if that's the majority of your money, you then you can afford to have like your fee budget and invest outside of that. But yeah, we can build portfolios for under 50 basis points, but it gets a little bit more tricky. And we've got another question on this in a minute. When you want to We've spoken about it a lot, build the four buckets of your portfolio. So this is where you have like defensive alternatives and you want to look at say like direct property as opposed to REITs or different types of things. Um, And that's where it gets a bit more expensive and I wouldn't be hung up on the fees, but purely for ETFs, yeah, the average is around 0.5% for Australian ETFs. Um, We said licks are about 0.9 and M funds or just funds in general about 1% to 1.1% plus sometimes performance fees. So I would include thematics... Typically, for the most part, thematics are outside my core. Yeah, same. I'd say in nowhere up to like 10% and yeah. generally of your growth allocation, yeah. not of your defensive. Yeah. No, I, yeah. We don't – are there many thematics that are like defensive? I mean, you could think like some of the yield products maybe. Yeah. But they're not. They're and then they're, they're like a thematic of duration or yeah. interest rates. Yeah. It's still, which, again, not something. It's more tactical asset allocation rather than thematic. Yeah. Like it's a bit 10 to 15 year theme. Yeah. Um, I'd, say, I'd say you get your core it. as low as 30.3% if you're just doing your core. Oh, yeah. And keeping yeah. your portfolio under 0.5 if you start to add some of that active and thematics to it. Well, that iShares IVV is like 0.04 Zero or yeah. 5. Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly low. One thing we talk about a lot. So every client meeting we have, we, we when we provide these statements of advice, it's a, it's a line in the sand of a portfolio we recommend for that person at that time. And that includes both low-cost core and mm-hmm. more expensive satellite. And we have conversations around how conscious you are of management fees that are going to, to ETFs and fund managers. And if you are fee conscious, you have to increase your, your portion in your core versus your satellite. But the trade-off of that is generally going to be higher levels of volatility and less diversification of, of asset yeah. classes and styles. So that's what we we always talk about, that balance with clients. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't think either of us are averse to having higher fee funds in portfolios. It's just knowing when and where they should be used and shouldn't be used. Uh, we had Mark LaMonica come on the show not too long ago. He talked about... Um, the Moisture do the active versus passive barometer, which is a really it's I think it's a I think it's a free report you can get on the Morningstar website. I was looking at it last night. Um, and they actually do the they run the numbers every six months of all of the different sectors, I think it's globally, to show you where active managers tend to do better than average versus ETFs. Yeah. In which sectors like global small caps, uh, European small caps, uh, examples like that. And you can actually use that to inform yourself of how much you should be paying. Like if you obviously go more active, you're in a, in a different bucket. Morningstar is a good source of that as well because they actually screen out a lot of the benchmark hugging active. Yeah. So a lot of the SPIVA data includes every single fund regardless of what they hold. Whereas Morningstar has a more qualitative yeah. view and says, well, these guys are benchmark hugging. We wouldn't invest in them because we'd use the benchmark anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And just cut straight through it. They're good ratings. Um, Hugh Jass. Spelled H-U-G-H-J-A-S-S. Um, asked a question which was quite interesting. Speaking of Morningstar, I was on their website just before having a bit of a read about this company because uh, I don't follow it that closely. What are your thoughts on the resilience of Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi, Good Guys, etc.? If I'm not mistaken, Good Guys is owned by JB Hi-Fi now, isn't it? Um, Harvey Norman seems to be significantly undervalued. Would this be a concern? Now, that's... Wasn't good guys, JB Hi-Fi? 
Did uh, you say that? Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I, some things to keep in mind, like obviously um, with the, these are two very different businesses. With Harvey Norman, actually, what a lot of people invest in Harvey Norman for is actually the retail property exposure. I think it's about $4 yeah. billion dollars worth um, versus say just the standalone businesses, which are franchisees and whatever. Um, Harvey Norman, definitely slow to adapt to online yeah. versus JB. Um and I'd say just from they're quite a different format as well. You've got the big format from Harvey Norman where JB is more more just electronics and that type of stuff. Always pumping when I go in there. And records. Yeah, records. Files. Yeah, so let's go back in time. Um, I've always preferred JB Hi-Fi as a business. I think it's leaner. I think it's more efficiently run. I think that it grows faster. Bigger volumes. Big, yeah. Just all the formats are more compact, which means that it's less floor space for rents and that sort of stuff. Adapted to online much better. Um, versus Harvey Norman, which is a bit, it's doing a bit of everything. I yeah. don't know. That's my general gist. And as for resilience, I would say in this economy, I probably wouldn't say either of them are super resilient. Uh, that wouldn't be at the top of my list. So that I can chime in on the valuation in a second, but clean to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I kind of share the same thing. Having seen Harvey Norman you know, over multiple decades, it is very much a property player. I looked at the financials before. It was like nearly $4 billion in property and the market cap's 4.4. Yeah. So it looks cheap because everyone's selling it off on concerns that the value of retail-facing property should be worth less than before. Yeah. We've kind of gone through that valuation yeah. cap rate discussion before. Yeah. Um, that the property hasn't been valued down significantly. It may not. You probably don't need to if you own it all and you lease it out to your own franchisee tenant. So <laughs> yeah. that's probably where the differential come from. But then uh, JB Hi-Fi is growing sales significantly better. Um, the not, not saying a red flag, but when you go on to Harvey Norman's financials, they were doing three-year CAGA from pre-COVID yeah. for their sales and earnings. And that's always... Oh, they love to play a few games yeah. with the, the charts yeah. and there's a few chart crimes in there and there's yeah. also a couple of... Uh, a couple of red flags in the financials that so, short sellers and so on have pointed out quite a few times. So the three-year CAG, so compound annual growth rate. Well, the, lowest the, before, yeah. the lowest possible point. point. Yeah. So pre-COVID into all of COVID and then afterwards to and to show how significant it was. Oh, um, but then the actual sales was like 5 or 6%, which is below what JB Hi-Fi is doing. I think like every time Harvey Norman comes out with a statement these days, there's always like a thing in the, the newspaper where... Um, uh, Jerry Harvey's just out there like buy my stock. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's it's a thing. In terms of resilience, yeah, I wouldn't probably think it, like JB is definitely the pick of my two, but uh, I wouldn't describe either of them as resilient. In terms of being undervalued, that's as Drew just said, it's a lot of asset value. And for retail property, how quickly does that get marked down in higher interest rates? Now, if you if you listen to the top of the show, you'd know that the property market doesn't- <laughs> Six times PE on Harvey Norman versus eight times yeah. on JB Hi-Fi. Yeah. yeah. So, they've been sold off. Like, it's fair to say they're cheap, conventionally cheap stocks. But what do you get? You might get a dollar, you know, you might get a dollar of value with Harvey Norman. Maybe your dollar becomes a 70 cents. Yeah. Whereas with JB, maybe it becomes a dollar 10 after two years. So, you get that kind of growth factor as well, which is worth paying up for. But- um. Yeah, I I just think like I wouldn't be I, I don't think when I think of businesses I don't necessarily think like resilience and undervalued are like the two cri criteria that often overlap. Normally, what you have is a, a good business is pretty well understood. I just think with yeah, I don't think it's going out of business, but I just wouldn't be buying it for that reason. Uh, it's a good question though because a lot of people do own it, and it is a pretty it's a dividend favorite because typically when you have a lot of insider ownership, the preference is to pay dividends. Okay, we've got a few more questions here, Drew. We've got uh, Dizzy Squid says I heard a comment that USA doesn't need iron ore. Was this from us? Because it recycles its steel. Can you explain this to me? And what does this mean for the mining industries in Australia? Uh, are there other products that can be recycled this way to get so that mining is reduced significantly? No idea. <laughs> I think it's one of those things that the <laughs> the news cycle on media is so short that you like any paper or small thing becomes a potential topic. Mm. Um, I think broadly with iron ore, there'd be two key things to look out for. Like this doesn't. I think we can recycle most things mm. to some level. That's whether you, like Tesla batteries, if you can. If you can recycle lithium batteries, then we don't need any more lithium. Mm. So the entire lithium sector, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. But <laughs> they, they can't recycle the whole thing yet. So, uh, And recycling would be positive anyway, I mm. think. But more importantly, for some looking more specifically at iron ore, 
the incremental buyer of iron ore is still China yep. by far. Uh, and then whether you can recycle and the other question is you know the US has embarked on this inflation reduction act which is targeted at re, you know increasing renewable energy uh, assets across the country that requires massive amounts of all kinds of commodities including iron ore to build wind turbines to to build new distribution grids and all, all those sort of things and it's being subsidized too so i'd say more demand for these things is it, it's going to continue yep. whether you know whether the price can stay at the current levels for a long period of time is another question. Yeah, I heard this but amazing study from I read it on Bill Gates' blog many years ago. Is that China used more iron ore in three years? No, used more cement in three years than the entire American like country did in the 1900s. Yeah, <laughs> that's why it's the increment always going to be incremental. But it doesn't yeah. matter what happens in the US. What happens in China for iron ore in particular? That's a good question. Uh, Make America great again, MAGA says, hey, bros, looking for a bit of clarity on international fund options. What are the pros and cons of funds that are built off a greater or fewer number of underlying securities, i.e. IVV, which is the S&P 500, so 500 stocks, VGS, which is the Vanguard Miski or World, I think it is, which is a lot, uh, and Aorus, which is an actively managed fund that is now available as an ETMF. I think it's like 10 to 20 stocks. You interviewed them. Yeah, I interviewed them quite a while ago, but their podcast only aired recently because we had to wait for the the ASX to get them listed, which took a very long time. Um, we met Bob Desmond today as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah related. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's also been uh, interviewed on the show as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a great question. Underlying securities, basically what you get is more diversification. You typically get lower volatility up to a certain point. So uh, there are some famous kind of beliefs or myths that uh, if you get to 10 diversified positions, you, rem- you remove 70% or you, you remove 70% of the diversifiable benefit from a portfolio. Yeah. Um, now, the old wisdom used to be 20 to 30 stocks was enough if they weren't correlated. Uh, and I think what we've now got with ETFs is you don't even need to worry about that because you can just buy one and you can get, in this VGS case, probably a 1,000 or whatever. Yeah. Now, there's a view here that I take, which is that there's an upside and downside to being overly diversified. Is this your first... It depends. It depends. It depends. It does. You're going to unpack that for us. Let me just unpack it. It's almost unprecedented. So, um, so IVV has 500 stocks. And I looked at the numbers last night. It's outperformed VGS considerably over the past five years um, to the tune of, say, 4 or 5% per annum. Now, what you get in return, you have to give up with some risk. And the standard deviation, don't want to bore you to death with what that means, but the standard deviation is very comparable, which is what you'd expect for an ETF that has 500 positions versus a lot more. So what I mean to say is for the extra diversification, you're not getting much benefit from the risk perspective. Risk-adjusted benefit, yeah. But from the return perspective, you seem to be giving up a lot if you just took the last five-year return. Yeah. However, the difference between IVV and VGS is that IVV has 500 US stocks and VGS has, I think, somewhere in the high teens- high teens in um, percentage exposure to Europe. Yeah. So you're getting direct exposure to brands like Unilever. um, And lower allocations to Apple, Google, Microsoft. Exactly. So you get more diversification that way. So the basic decision is this. Do you bet on Americanism going forward, which is IVV, or do you hedge that a little bit and go with the lesser returning, at least historically, VGS ETF? I think more and more people are turning to VGS. I still think that... IVV is a good product and the, the, the fund itself is fine. Um, that's my view. So there is a limit to security diversification for me. Yeah, and I'd look at the, so the end of that question would be compared to Aorus, which only holds 15 or 20 oh, stocks. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're referring to what we call tracking error yeah. or active share. And that's how much does that portfolio differ from the, the VGS or the S&P. Yep. Uh, and it's, I mean, you, we've spoken a lot where we, we use, you can build a passive core, but for retirees, we like to introduce actively managed strategies. And if you're going to pay for active management, you want someone that's unique and completely different. Yep. Um, so pros and cons of having a highly concentrated 15, 20 stock portfolio. One, it should be very performed very differently from those two indexes. So you're getting some diversification benefit. Mm. Potentially, should. Should. But that can happen on the upside and the downside. So yeah. if the approach of that strategy is not suited to the market, it could significantly underperform the lower cost index. 
Um, so that's where you'd have it as like a small, like you'd have the Aorus fund as a smaller position of your overall pie versus these other very well diversified. Yeah, and you, we, we'd say is they're swinging. So they're swinging for not necessarily home runs, but you know you can get the beta or the market for next to nothing. Yeah. And this is trying to diversify away from that and make sure your portfolio is more resilient yeah. if the market falls 20 or 30%. And that's probably the main one, which is how do you how do you limit the the downside mm. or, or the, the volatility to you know what your market or your assets falling? And it's by having different exposures within your portfolio. And that's where high, they call that higher conviction yeah. strategies have a role. We use, tend to use both. Yeah. Um, I think Stephen in the past on that, Stephen Arnold from Aora said that um, what they're going for is revenue diversification. And there's an interesting point uh, from the some numbers that I pulled up from a few years ago. Sorry, you've heard this before, but in the S&P 500, around 30% of their income, like Apple and Google and Microsoft, comes from outside the United States. So you get the international diversification. You just don't get it in the way that you think. Yeah. You get it through the sales and revenue of the businesses, not necessarily in the stock codes. Okay. I'll let you restructure my assets, says, um, I've just binged the majority of your episodes on portfolio construction and trying to restructure my own portfolio. However, don't have the capability to deploy into some classes that have higher minimums. Any advice or information on options for growth and defensive alternatives, pardon me, that wouldn't require the minimum 15K investment? Or would you recommend the basic 60-40 type split between growth and defensive assets? Drew. It depends. <laughs> We'd probably talk about fee budget and and what your trajectory, how long you you're investing for, and how worried you are about volatility. Mm-hmm. But there's you know if you go on to the ASX website, there's a list of I think how many is it like six hundred listed products that are available now. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, and and the key here is you know you don't require fifteen thousand dollars. You only require fifteen thousand dollars minimum if you're investing into a managed fund off a of PDS. Yeah. So if you go into that listed product sphere, there's a broad, massive range of options. So growth and defense, start with growth alternatives. What we define as growth uh, would be non-share investments. So it could be things like an infrastructure strategy, so Magellan, or uh, a, a list, a, a REIT, or a, a highly diversified property trust. So Charter Hall mm-hmm. has a number of those listed on the ASX. could be something like DJRE, which I think we've spoken about in the past, diversified okay, global yes. commercial property. So you see the trend here is of listed products, but which aren't your typical top 20, top 50 stocks that are that are exposed in every other part of your portfolio. Yeah, and then yeah. on the defensive side, you're going outside government bonds into corporate and and less traditional forms of lending yeah. for fixed income. Yeah. Um, so people that follow us would know that we've talked about a lot of these different types of things, but basically anything that you can get through a listed product. So whether that's an M fund, an actively managed ETF. Um, M funds still have some minimum investments. That's yeah, some of them are like 10K and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and see, so like an actively managed ETF, just I only know this because off the top of my head, but the Aorus one, for example, is like 500 bucks or something, like the minimum of the ASX. Whereas, you know, maybe there's another version of that where they didn't have that. You might have to pay 10 grand or 20 grand or something like that. So what Drew's saying is basically you can access these vehicles in, in new ways thanks to exchange traded products um, or as we would call listed uh, so you can definitely get many of the buckets you just can't get some of the things that you might find in a financial planners arsenal things like direct property or unlisted assets um, so that's what one of the benefits of seeing a financial planner is they can help you use a platform to do these types of things get around those minimums yeah okay so meta to the moon says hi owen drew Curious as to your thoughts on the Loftus Peak Global Disruption Fund. I was originally introduced to the fund by a fund manager at a conference, and I've been taking more of an interest lately with an increased attention being paid to AI in the media. Owen, your recent emphasis on anti-fragile companies also makes this fund quite an interesting proposition as part of my satellite. Do you know much about them? Yeah, I've met Alex Pollack a few times Oh yeah, back in the day, so the, the, the portfolio manager of this strategy. Um, as the name suggests, it is very much a thematic strategy. Global disruption, mm. looking at tech companies, buy the portfolios full of Google, Amazon, AMD, advanced micro, micro devices, Apple, Microsoft, and then some smaller tech companies as well. So, I mean, uh, there's, I don't have a view on the on the the fund itself. It's basically a, a you have to believe in the ability of that that individual manager 
to be able to understand the disruption in the technology and innovation sector uh, better than others. But it, yeah, it's very it's it's not um, what's the best way to say it? not not poor quality would be <laughs> without without recommending it. It just provides a pure exposure to global tech. Yep, um, that's fair. So when I, I can't really speak much to the fund itself, I need, would need to do a bit more work, unfortunately. But um, what I can say is that. Um, a lot of these businesses important. Uh, sorry, a lot of these funds. It's important to know what stage of the cycle you're considering them. So, like right now, things are very volatile. So, if you're looking at short-term performance and these types of things, you're probably going to find that it's, it doesn't look great. Um, but if you take that longer-term perspective, do you believe that these types of businesses are what you want to capture in a basket? And then you go into okay, this is going to find a spot in my portfolio. Perhaps now let's look at the vehicle and the investor and the the fund that we study. Um, you would look at things like the team, their track record before before this as well, um, investment process and how well that's followed and looking for any anomalies in the holdings. And that's probably where I'd go. And if you want to learn more about the anti-fragile framework that I've been looking at, um, if you're a member, you can jump inside Rascore. There was an update recently. Uh, it's a good one though. Thank you for bringing that to our attention, Meta to the Moon. Uh, okay, we've got two more questions. The next one comes from Christopher Scase. Mallorca. Mallorca. So wonderful place. Um, how do you go about researching the board members and management of a company? Quite a simple question. Uh, it's really important. I can tell you that much. In terms of board members, you often don't get as much exposure to board members as you do management teams like CEOs and chief financial officers and that. Um, could you research the board of the RBA in a similar way? Oh, you certainly could. So just a simple Google um, would find that Andrew Derrimuth is like a little, <laughs> is like a silhouette on the RBA website that's like, this is going to be filled by Andrew Derrimuth. Um, but you could, and I think this is, I think amongst the retail investing community, understanding the board of directors and what they do is a very undervalued part of their process. They look at the CEO and think, oh, CEO says this, this, and this, wonderful. Well, who approves this, what the CEO is doing? How engaged the board? How much are they setting the strategy? How, what's their experience? Yeah. Are they, you know, there's a what's search their for independence, but you want a board that's committed to your business at the same time. Yeah. Because you don't want to, like, you got, you think most people that get appointed to boards are people who want to have an opinion on something. And so if you've got five people in a room, business people typically, that want to have an opinion on something, oftentimes they want to get involved so much in the business that they end up just riding over the top of a lot of the other stuff that's trying to get done. And people are getting pulled backwards and forwards. Um, and so what I would say is you've got to look at both the CEO and the management team and how their relationship is with the, the board of directors. You don't want it too close, but you want it close enough that they have an understanding. I do like it when a CEO moves onto the board eventually or a founder moves onto the board. So you can hope that um, some of the ethos and culture is maintained. But some things you can do, obviously just look in the annual report in Australia, uh, has information on their remuneration and how they structured things. I think that tells you a lot about the board of directors as much as it does the management team. Uh, look at what um, meetings they've been on. It's also featured in the annual report. Just Google them, like see where they've been in the past. Look at their LinkedIn profile. Bloomberg has that kind of history yeah. for most people. Bloomberg has it. There's another website I can't remember that has it. Um, that has just like freely available. Yeah, it will show you their directorships. Look at the companies that they've been on the boards or of and see how they perform. Like if there's a chairman of this company right now, go back to when that chairman was a CEO in their time. And they were a CEO for five years at XYZ. How did the company perform under their guidance? Um, sometimes you'll be unpre unpleasantly surprised at how they carry themselves and what they actually achieved. Um, and I'd say, so two big things, study their track record and study the incentive structures, use the annual report, LinkedIn, anything that you can get, watch videos, get a read on their body language, all that sort of stuff. Um, and just make sure that the their money's where their mouth is, get that alignment, get that long-term incentive structure in place. All right, final question comes from Dumbass Trader. <laughs> Dumas. Oh, sorry, Dumas. Dumas. Oh, yeah, sorry, my mistake. Dumbass, I thought it was. Uh, but it's Dumas. <laughs> my mistake. <laughs> okay, so I know this is not financial advice, so I'm asking for a friend. A couple in their late 40s. They earn a decent salary, 320K and 180. Not bad. They have 350K left in their mortgage um, in a fully variable loan of about 350K. So that would mean that it's um, fully offset uh, that, so they don't pay in, uh, interest, which is lovely. They're basically saying if we decide to pull the money out um, of the offset and put this money to work buying ETFs or shares, the dividends we received after the tax man takes a cut at the highest rate would mean... We might be better off just leaving our cash offsetting the mortgage. I'm wondering what your thought process is on this so I can tell my friend. Um, 
yeah, obviously not personal advice, but um, we've spoken about this a lot on the show, Drew. Yeah, I think it's quite a common uh, almost simplification or misunderstanding of investments that all we do is, I think almost last week we talked about yep. the income production of a portfolio versus the fees. Yeah. Whereas you're not investing solely for income. Like it's like if you're going to buy an investment property, mm. you're actually buying, you're getting the tax benefit on the interest, but you're buying it for the long-term growth and compounding. So I think that's an important one to consider that you're considering the, the long-term objective of taking that money and investing it. And it can't be measured in one year what the income was versus the interest. It's measured over 15 or 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I'd say this in this instance, there's so many options they have. Yeah. So get advice. And if this person is in their late 40s, I would instruct them to get advice because there's a lot you could do. You've got a very good income. You've still got years to, to earn. And it sounds like the financial situation is pretty good. So there is a lot of scope. You're basically the dream for a financial planner. Um, so I would say get even if you're like worried about that, just at least get once off advice. Someone who can structure you properly. Like for example, that as soon as someone says they got 320 grand in income, I think that's a lot of tax. Yeah. And then I think, oh, it looks like you're going to be paying overs on your concessional contributions. I wonder if you've thought about taking the excess out or doing something with that. Yeah. Uh, do you have an SMSF? Um, there are so many things that come into mind here. Come to mind, sorry. I would say there there's a way that we know, um, which you've got in your notes, essentially debt recycling, uh, is, which is where you can pay off your loan, then redraw a line of credit against the house, making it an investment loan, which is then invested. And that means that the tax, uh, the interest on that loan is tax deductible. But uh, I'm sure your accountant or financial advisor can help you out with that. It's a really good position to be in, uh, Dumas, uh, Dumas. Um, <laughs> So I would just say, um, I I would just say, just be sensible at this time because people in the situ in a similar situation could go and take on a lot of debt. They could make simple mistakes um, that cost them dearly. So get the right advice. Make sure you're not going to change course. Yes. Either. Like yeah. You can just can upgrade your house in three years' time. Well, then. Yeah, then you probably wouldn't be taking a line of credit, would you? No. But the thing here is like they also said, they gave me a hint in the question and name. They said, Dumas Trader. <laughs> so I hope that the trader part isn't something that they live by because I would not be suggesting, um, you know, reversing on the mortgage and- Trading. Trading. C trading something. That would be- a whole I don't know how you feel about CFDs and <laughs> currency. <laughs> currency. <laughs> 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 I've put those crickets in here. Um, okay, so that's actually a really good question. And you're very fortunate to be in that position, so well done. And I think it's actually a really a good position because you have a lot of scope. I did say this in the past that I would pay off my mortgage if it was me. Um, I was asked a hypothetical question. I'd pay off my mortgage. And then I would look to use that asset as some way to enhance my return. Uh, but that's just me. Okay, so we've got to pick a name for this week's uh, best name. It can't be <laughs> Bo. Sorry, Bo. Okay, Bo. We cannot repeat that name again. Um, I did like a lot of these. A lot of these questions are very like they're quite tame, which is which is quite good. I actually think the. I mean, Bo's question was good. I'm just afraid to say the name again. Yeah, Bo's question was very good. Very, very good about um, rejigging the portfolio and uh, not being, you know, having a bit of lack of direction and wanting to find products that can fit. Um, Maybe give it to Bo then. Okay, Bo. But <laughs> you're trying to get me to say the name. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I can't say it. So, um, I just Bo. Bo Tom is the surname. Bo Tom. Picker. <laughs> Picker. <laughs> I can't say that the That's hyphen. It. Stop so. it there. Okay, Bo Tom Picker. Uh, so you can uh, write into us. We gave away a lot of these recently. The Value Investor Program is yours. Four hundred ninety-nine uh, fake dollars in your pocket, mate, because it's uh, yours free. So you get the course of Value Investor Programs on Rask Education. I hope you enjoy it. There were some really good questions through today um, from everyone from Dizzy Squid. Right down. Thank you for writing in. Uh, and sending us your questions. If you do want to get in contact with us and send us your questions, there's a thing in your podcast player in front of you that says ask a question. Just click that and select the Australian Investors Podcast. Uh, we will uh, be back next week, as always, 7 a.m. on a Saturday. But normally what happens at the end of the show, Drew, is um, we're left with a little bit of a send-off into the distance. Until next Saturday morning, uh, you leave us with one of your jokes. Now, yeah. as an economist, I think economists m may deal in these types of matters. So, I'm expecting good things. 
Yeah, this is probably not my best, but I, I felt it appropriate. Okay. Dad says, <laughs> oh, credit to Dad says, Joe. If it's not his best, then you know. <laughs> not to brag. Oh. But I have this incredible talent in predicting what's inside a wrapped present. Oh. It's I, a gift. I've read this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. You know what? That's actually not that bad. Because right. I, I did ask ChatGPT last night for a joke and it was horrendous. <laughs> so, you're doing pretty well, mate. You're beating the supercomputer. Um, and that's, that's, that's all we've got time for today. If you want to get in contact with Drew or anyone in the team at Waddle Partners Financial Planning, there is also a link in your show notes there. In fact, there's always, every week, there's a heap of resources in your podcast player. They include show notes for the week. They include links to things that we find interesting. Take a look at those, as well as links to take up some of our sponsors' um, offers. Like some of them, like I think there's like an intelligent investor free trial in there. There's a heap of stuff in there. So just go and have a look at that. And uh, we'll be back next week. Send us your questions. Drew, thanks for joining me. It's good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.